team. That was uh, such a, a great new song, very rich in its theology, and it's uh, just so good to be reminded of the fact that Christ is our sure and steady anchor, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, it is good to see all of you here this morning, um, and our, our time in the, in the Word will be, as you can see, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. The Word of God reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son and for the fact that he died on the cross for our sins. As we study your word today and as we look at at a very sensitive topic, as we look at the aspect of suffering in the, the life of believers, we pray, Lord, that you would magnify yourself in our eyes, that you would be glorified, that you would help us to trust in you and to worship you even in times where we don't understand what we're going through. We thank you for your word. Honor yourself this day, we pray. Your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we might not readily admit it, but because because politeness dictates that we express thanks whenever we receive a gift. But we can all admit that sometimes we get gifts that we just don't want. For some of you, that might be an appliance. Happy Mother's Day, here's your vacuum cleaner. Uh, or for some of you, it might be a tie. You know, I'm sure some of you fathers, you have plenty of ties in your closets because of Father's Day. Or how about for, for some of you kids, on Christmas Day when you open those presents, and lo and behold, you get socks or sweaters. And it's just like, oh, thanks, clothes. Hmm. One of the gifts that I received as a child that I was not particularly thankful for was a box of cereal. <laughs> a box of cereal. And so, you know, I op- it's Christmas morning. I open, I open up the gift, and what is it? It's a box. It's a Costco-sized box of frosted mini-wheats. And I was, I'm looking at it. I was like, cereal? Did I do something wrong? Like, what happened? What, at least get me Lucky Charms or something. Like, give me some kid cereal. And, you know, I don't remember what we ended up doing with it. My family probably, you know, we, we probably all ate, ate the Frosted Mini Wheats. But, I mean, I, I think that my, my initial reaction does illustrate a point, though. It, it illustrates what my heart was at that moment, and it was that I was just completely ungrateful. I was ungrateful for the gift that was given to me. It was given to me by my family. It's food. You know, some people don't have food. And yet, at the same time, because of my own selfishness, I was not thankful. We, as Christians, we can be equally ungrateful when it comes to God's gifts to us. And I'm not talking necessarily about our spiritual gifts, although I'm sure there are times, for those of you who are serving hard, that you do wish... Man, can't someone else do this ministry? Why do I always have to do it? And that's another issue for another time. But what I'm talking about right now, what I'm trying to address is the gift of suffering. We appreciate God's gifts to us when we can readily enjoy them. And that's often because when we look at what God brings into our lives, we're looking at it from a man-centered perspective. We're Specifically, we're looking at at what God brings into our lives from our own man-centered perspective, rather than trying to see God's perspective in everything. Theoretically, we know what our response ought to be when we suffer. We know that we're supposed to look to God with eyes of faith. We know that we're supposed to be joyful. And yet it's hard. 
it's difficult because it's happening to us. It's happening to us. We're experiencing pain. We're experiencing suffering. And yet, what we see in Scripture is that despite the pain, despite the suffering, we still need to honor God in our lives. And that can be difficult for us, can't it? When you're suffering, you're not necessarily thinking, how can I glorify God in my suffering? You're thinking, God, please, just let it stop. The Apostle Paul, he knew that the Philippian church was greatly concerned for him due to his imprisonment. And he writes to them in order to encourage them. But he also writes to exhort them, to to exhort them to live lives that honor Christ as they too experience opposition and persecution due to their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle who has greatly suffered for the sake of Christ, he knows all too well how difficult it can be to honor God in the midst of suffering. And so he points the Philippians to the eternal perspective, to challenge and to motivate believers to glorify God in all things. And so that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. We find two encouragements that allow us to endure in the time of suffering. Two encouragements that will allow us to endure in the time of suffering. The first encouragement that we see is the surety of salvation. The surety of salvation. Verse 27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this exhortation or command that Paul gives the Philippians comes right after the very, very familiar section where Paul talks about how to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you're unfamiliar with the circumstances that causes Paul to write this, Paul is experiencing a dilemma. He's in prison, and he, he knows that it is far better for him to be in heaven And to be with Christ and to experience all the joy that is associated with that. But at the same time, he's experiencing a dilemma because he knows that the Philippian church needs him as well. And so it's not to say that Paul has lost all hope, that he just wants to die. But he just just wants what's better. He just wants to be in heaven with Christ. And so he's at a crossroads. He's trying to figure out, which one should I choose? And he knows that it is better for him to stay on earth at this time because the Philippians need him. And at the same time, as he's telling them that, he gives them this command. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word only, when Paul uses it, it's like he's lifting up his finger as a warning and says, hey, don't get lazy. I know it's good for me to be here for you, but you still have work to do as well. Paul, he certainly does instruct the Philippians with more instructions than just only conduct yourself in a, worthy, in, a, in a manner worthy of the gospel. But the reason why he says only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is because this command, this command is the critical command. It is all-encompassing. Everything else that falls, every other command that comes in this text falls under the umbrella of, of acting in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, when he says, conduct yourself, yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ, it's a pretty straightforward phrase, right? We understand what that means. It just basically means behave yourself, act like a Christian. Essentially, that's what it means. But the reason why Paul specifically says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ is because he's trying to bring up the idea of citizenship to them. Now, if you didn't know... The city of Philippi was a Roman colony in in the country of Macedonia. And because it was a Roman colony, the people who lived in Philippi were treated as Roman citizens. They had all the benefits of being Roman citizens. Now, we understand as Americans that there there are some great benefits to being Americans as citizens. And so... In in the same way, Paul is playing on that, and he's saying, look, you guys take great pride in being Roman citizens. You experience tax breaks. Your land is treated as if it was in Italy. I know it's a big deal for you to be considered citizens of Rome, but don't forget, you are also citizens of heaven while you are here on this earth. Now, for us, what does it look like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, First and foremost, 
it comes, it comes up, it reveals itself in our obedience to Christ's commands. John 14, 15 highlights this as Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I know for some of you, that might be a difficult saying to hear because you've come from churches where they, where they tell you what you ought to do. You've come from churches where they try and control every single aspect of your life. And I understand that you might have some reservations when you are told that you must obey the commands of Christ. And I want us to be careful here. I want us to be careful. Because we can easily look at the text. We can easily look at anyone telling us, you must obey the word of God. You must, you must uh, obey the commands of Christ. And, and, claim that we're being, uh, and claim that those people are being legalistic. We can say that, right? Oh, I don't like that church. They tell me that I have to obey God because uh, the Bible says so. That's legalistic. No, it's not. It's not. Legalism is not defined by people telling you what to do. Legalism is identified by the addition of requirements to either salvation or sanctification, your holiness. An example of this is you must convert to Judaism first before you can become a Christian. That's not true. That's not what Scripture says. But the Judaizers in, in, the early, in the early days of the church said that if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. That's not what the Bible says. Or how about this? You have to observe the Sabbath and the dietary laws in order to be a true believer. That's not in Scripture either. Or how about this? It is sin for any believer to watch a movie that is rated higher than G. People have said that, haven't they? Or what about this? If you really want to be holy, then you need to do exactly what I am doing. That's legalism. That's legalism. When you impose your own standard of righteousness and holiness upon what Scripture says, that is legalism. That's what true legalism is. But when, I, when we say, obey Scripture, obey what is in the Word, that's not legalism. That's just pure obedience to God that honors our Lord Jesus Christ because he is Lord. That's why we do it. So if you truly believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again and, and you have confessed your sin to God, then you will naturally live a changed life. If we are one in Christ and we died to sin when he died on the cross and achieved the same victory that he did when he rose from the grave over sin in his resurrection, then how, how can sin continue to rule in our lives? It can't. We are not to live as if we did before, when we, were, before we became Christians. That lifestyle is dead to us. Why? Because we're one in Christ if we are one in him, if we are victorious over sin because of him, we are to live lifestyles that are radically different from someone who is not a Christian. There is no other option for us who claim to be believers in Christ. We will still struggle with our sin because we still live in these fleshly bodies. However, I don't want that to be an excuse for us either. We can make excuses, right? I'm forgiven. I've, and so, you know, when I sin, it's okay. God's all right with that. Because he forgave me already. All I need to do is just ask for forgiveness and it's all right. And, of course, we might not necessarily think of it in, those, in that ridiculous tone. But sometimes that's the way that we act, isn't it? We basically excuse our sin. We just turn a blind eye to it. It's all right. I'm forgiven. But that's not what Christ death and resurrection on the cross affords us. Sin should not be master over us. Anger, pride, sexual immorality in all of its forms, slander, gossip, greed, even our little pet idolatries, all of these sins are what we fight against as Christians. They will not rule over us. They cannot rule over us. They have no control over us because Christ has won, and he did it on the cross. 
The victory of our Lord over sin is precisely what makes sin in the life of a believer a travesty, a tragedy, a shame, and an embarrassment. Why would anyone want to believe in Christ if when they look at you and me, all they see is themselves? Why would they want Christ? Why would they want anything to do with God? When we sin, we rob the gospel of its power. We rob Christ of his rightful glory. Because we basically say, it's not enough. Christ's death on the cross was meaningless because I still live in my sin. I still love my sin. That's what we say when we sin. We're essentially just saying, it, the gospel, salvation, it doesn't matter. It has no power because I'm not changed. That's what we say. But there is hope. There is hope. You do have victory. You aren't overcome by your sin. God is more powerful than our sin. He can overcome the fact that we still sin. He still is righteous and glorious even though we sin. That's a good thing. That's good for us. And he's merciful and gracious to us even though we do at times bring shame to his name. We must strive then, brothers and sisters, to do what is right in order to honor our Lord to bring glory to him, and to prove him powerful. No matter what our circumstances bring, our obedience to Scripture, it paints a picture to the world and to each other of the God that we worship. So we show ourselves worthy in our obedience, but we also show ourselves worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit. See what Paul says. He says, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When Paul writes this, he's writing very close to his impending release from prison. And so he knows that he's going to get set free. He's not going to die. And he has every single intention to go visit the Philippians. But at the same time, he also understands that God could very well have different plans for him and that he might not see the Philippians. So he says to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I see you or whether I just hear of you, I know that you're standing firm. The goal is for the Philippians to together Stand firm for the sake of the gospel. The idea of stand firm has this idea of being resolute, immovable. You hold your ground no matter what comes at you. And something that we can't necessarily see in the English, it's clear in the Greek, but um, it's, you know, you you can still figure it out if you're just reading in context. But it's Paul's desire that, it's Paul's desire is not just for individuals within the church to stand firm, but it's for the entire church together as one body to stand firm. You, plural, I want to see you, plural, standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the gospel. He wants to see the entire church standing firm. He's talking about the unity of spirit that is given to us by the Holy Spirit as a result of Christ. The same unity of purpose can only be possible in Christians if we are one in the Holy Spirit. And that's an amazing thing as well, isn't it? The fact that no matter where you are in the world, if you come across other believers, you are family. The majority of you here this morning are not my blood relatives. But you are my family because of Christ. That is an amazing thing that our God does for us. We are one in Christ. This is further explained. The, the unity that we are to have is further explained 
by Paul as he switches metaphors and he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a very similar idea to standing firm together in one spirit. It still emphasizes the unity, but instead, the unity of believers, but instead of necessarily talking about you stand firm no matter what comes at you, Paul is also adding an element of movement. We progress together for the same purpose. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is, the faith that comes from the gospel. Or sorry, that is based on the gospel. We are on the same page. We work together for the same purpose. If you want to borrow an illustration from sports, it's like the offensive line of a football team. They work together as one unit to move forward, to make progress on the football field. Or if you want to even think about it this way, You think about the Roman army, and I'm sure some of you have seen movies that depict the Roman army. They work together as one unit to accomplish their tasks, to advance on the battlefield. They move together, shields locked, spears in hand, moving together as a unit in order to go to victory. We as Christians... We, we need to work together at all times, but especially in times of trouble. Especially in times of trouble. We are each other's support. We care for one another. We uphold one another when times are difficult. We stand united in our struggle for the cause of the faith. We long for the same thing. We long for the spread and the growth of the faith in the world. And we show our God mighty in our unity. But we also show our God mighty in the way that we respond to trouble. Look at verse 28. It says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Not showing alarm when we are faced with our opponents, is another way that we act in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This phrase, in no way alarmed, it brings to the Philippian mind, at least, the idea of young horses, or horses that are startled, and then they go and stampede. And sometimes that can be our reaction when we're scared too, right? You get scared and you just run. Or you panic. Now, you know, we don't know specifically the opponents of the Philippians. Paul doesn't specify that, but he doesn't have to. He's writing to the Philippians. They already know who's against them. But it could be a combination of a couple of people. It could be the Jewish people that are living in Philippi. It could be anti-Jewish, I'm sorry, anti-Christian Philippians who are loyal to Rome. And it could even also be those who falsely claim to be Christians. But at the same time, Paul says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they say. Don't be alarmed by them. For us, the opponents today could be the government trying to take away our religious liberty. I'm sure that you are very aware of what's going on in, in our government right now. Politically, it, it does seem very, very... It's just very troubling. There's, I mean, there's nothing we can say about that, really, outside of that. Our opponents could also be our coworkers. It could be our friends. It could be our family who mock us for our belief in God. Or it could just be the people that you strike up conversations with. It doesn't matter who they are, though. Don't be alarmed by them. Don't be alarmed when you're opposed. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying either that you should be brazen, that you should be disrespectful, and that you should attack them, but I am saying stand firm. And that's what Paul's saying as well. Stand firm. Have courage. Our God has secured victory, and he is by your side. Remember, our Lord Jesus, he reminds us in John 15, 18, 20, that the world hated him first. And if they hated him, they will surely hate those who follow after him. And if they persecute him, then they will surely persecute us as well. So we're not surprised by suffering or persecution for our faith. But we also want to be careful of two things. We want to be careful of being intimidated into silence, which is our natural default. If we're scared, we just don't speak up. We don't say anything. Or, we also want to be aware of the other thing, too. We want to be aware of aggressively going after those who do not believe what we believe. Being alarmed can cause us 
a sort of fight or flight response. And we have to be very careful as Christians of being contentious. Careful of being contentious. One of the ways that I have to be careful of myself is when I read news articles or blogs or even uh, faith-based posts on Facebook. You've got to be careful of those comment sections, of those Facebook debates. And I'm sure for some of you, if you've read the comment section of any sort of news outlet or, or uh, Christian blog, you know some of the, the trouble that starts there. And to be honest, it is quite shameful for those who claim to be believers to be on these comment sections, ripping to shreds mercilessly the people that post. We have to be careful of that. They're unbelievers. They're not going to act like Christians. Don't expect for them to have Christian values when they obviously do not have Christian values. When you go after them like that, and I'm not saying that you guys do, it's not necessarily a problem that I'm aware of in this church, but but when when we go after people like that, we bring dishonor to our Lord. We bring dishonor to Christ because we basically act as spoiled children who think that we're right in arguments. So we have to be careful of that. Be careful of the way that you conduct yourself because we want to act in a manner worthy of the gospel. We don't want to bring shame to our Lord. So we have to be careful of that. And when we do do that, though, our lack of alarm and our composure demonstrates to these people, to our opponents, the greatness of our God and the power of our God. It also shows them a sign of destruction. Now, when we say that, when Paul says that, he's not necessarily saying that all of a sudden there's going to appear behind our opponents or before our opponents a flashing sign that says, you are going to be doomed to hell. There's nothing like that. We know that. We know that. But... When Paul says it's going to be a sign of destruction for them. And, and, you know, to be honest, some of them might even know that they're going to hell because of their unbelief. Some people know that. And you can even see that when they're in their weakest and darkest moments, can't you? When they say, oh, man, I'm going to go to hell for that. And sometimes they don't really mean it. They just say it. But they understand They understand that if they don't follow after Christ, if they don't care for what God has to say, that if he really does exist, they're going to have to answer for that. So they know that. But the biggest thing that shows up as a sign of their their destruction is the way that we respond when they see us and they realize that we're acting on conviction, that we're not giving up, that we will not be intimidated, we will not be silenced, we will stand for the righteous standard of the gospel, even if it doesn't make any sense to them. That tells them something. It shows them something. It makes a point. When we stand firm, when we continue to push forward, even in the midst of heavy opposition, and additionally, we're not alarmed, it speaks volumes to those who oppose Christianity. Think about Acts 5. Acts 5, the religious leaders, they're gathered together and, uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Christianity. These Jewish leaders, they want to put a stop to it if they can. They want to snuff it out. But Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, he wisely counseled the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to let it go. To not go against the Christians Not because he believed in them or he supported their cause, but he said to them specifically, don't don't oppose these Christians in case God is with them. Because if this is of God, you cannot stop it anyway. And if this is of God and you go against it, you're not fighting against Christians. You're fighting against God. That's from an unbeliever. An unbeliever recognized because of their actions This is of God. When we stand firm, when we push forward, when we're not afraid, 
it's also a sign of salvation for us as well. It reminds us of the surety of our salvation. Our ability to be bold and to stand up in the face of persecution and suffering is a confirmation to believers that our God is with us. It is confirmation that our salvation is sure because God has won. Think about this. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 27, Paul talks about all the things that he has suffered through, all the things that he's survived. He was whipped to the point of death many times. He was beat, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. He suffered all of these things, and yet he was still going at it. He still stood up for the gospel. He still preached the gospel. One particular incident Paul was, take, was dragged out of the city to be stoned. And all, all the crowd threw big, hunking rocks on Paul. And they left him for dead. They thought he was, he was gone. I mean, after all, who could, who could survive getting rock, those huge rocks thrown at them? So Paul, after he's stoned and left for dead, what does he do? He doesn't just lie there. He gets up. He gets up and he marches himself straight back into that city and he continues to proclaim the gospel. And if, if you're a rational person, you ought to think, why? Why would you do that, Paul? Why would you, getting stoned to within an inch of your life, get right back up, go back into the city and do the exact same thing that got you stoned in the first place? It really doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? It's because Paul was driven by something. He was driven by the glory of God. Paul understood how significant the glory of God was. It so enraptured his mind that all Paul could think about was the glory of God. It doesn't matter necessarily if his life was lost. All he cared about was the glory of God. That's all he wanted to see. So it doesn't matter whether he gets whether he gets killed in the process. He's going to continue to go forward to proclaim the glory of God to all the nations so that Christ can be glorified, so that Christ can be made, made glorified in the eyes of all. And we don't live like that necessarily. Do you care about the glory of God? Are you driven by that? The glory of God, because we're believers, it ought to move us. It ought to be our motivation to live holy lives and to proclaim the gospel to others. If you don't have that as your driving factor, then you just become Sunday Christians. Living in your religiosity. The glory of God is everything to us as believers. It moves us forward. It's the reason why we are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's because we know that there is something bigger than us. It's God. The glory of God moves us for that. And he will do everything, in, even in the times of suffering, in order to accomplish that. Some of you might think, I don't know how I'm going to react in the time of suffering. If someone were to say, your life hangs in the balance... What do you have to say for yourself? Some of us just have no idea what we're going to say. And I'll be honest, I don't know what I'm going to say, but that's okay too. Why? Jesus in Matthew 10, verses 19 to 20, he's telling his disciples that they will experience hardship. They will be handed over to the authorities. They will have to answer for their faith. And he says to them, not to worry about what they're going to say. Because the Spirit... The Holy Spirit will be the one who will give them words to say. It's evident also in Acts 7, when Stephen stood before the religious leaders of Israel. They took him out of the city to be stoned too. He knew he was going to die. What did he say to them? He told them the gospel. He proclaimed to them the gospel. And he showed them that they were sinners. And in their rage, they killed him. And let me make a note here. This one's for free. It's not really necessarily part of this. But when you look at Acts 7 and you see how Stephen responded in the midst of his suffering, when he knew that he was about to die, 
Stephen was calm. He was collected, and he had a face like an angel. Now, when the text says he has a face like an angel, they're, you know, Dr. Luke is not necessarily looking at this thinking about those fat you know, babies that you see in, on, on your little Valentine's Day cards when you think of angels. He's not thinking about that. What he's thinking about when he says that Stephen has a face like an angel is the fact that Stephen had the exact same face that a messenger of God on a mission would have. That is the fierce face of an angel, the one that causes people to fall down on their face in terror because of what, they've saw, what they saw. That's the face that Stephen had. He was resolute in his convictions. He knew he was going to die, but he didn't care because all that he cared about was the glory of God, even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of suffering. So don't necessarily worry about what you're going to say. Because God will be the one who will give you the words to say. When we stand firm, when we push forward, when we are unafraid, when we boldly proclaim the power of Christ to save and to change a life, those, uh, and they see us, and they see that we were once sinners, we were once rebellious, but now we are saints, and that we are one in Him, we remind ourselves and our opponents of the surety of our salvation as the glory of God moves us forward to be witnesses even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So our second, uh, so that was our, our first encouragement that allows us to endure the time of suffering. Our second encouragement that allows us to endure in the time of suffering is the reassurance of God's sovereignty. It's the reassurance of God's sovereignty. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. As Christians, we say that we believe in the sovereignty of God. And that's true. We do. But when the rubber meets the road, when you get into an accident... When you lose all of your earthly belongings, when you lose a loved one, when your relationships crack and falter, that's when we struggle to really live as if God is sovereign. Because we can't see what he's doing. And the only thing that we're really left with is to ask the question of why. Why, God? Why am I suffering? It's a real pain that we have. But at the same time, you can trust that your God loves you and that he's still good. And that suffering isn't necessarily as bad as it, as it seems. And I, I'm not trying to minimize suffering at all. But let me explain why. Paul, in verse 29, he's, he's providing the reason why we ought to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Look at what he says. It has been granted for you, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. When we think about the grace of God, we think about the grace of God in terms of our salvation. But here... Paul is also talking about the grace of God in our suffering. In our suffering. The word granted can literally be tra translated as grace gifted. So if you were to retranslate that, for to you it has been grace gifted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. This is significant because Paul's telling the Philippians that it is by God's grace that they are both saved and that they suffer. We're not unfamiliar with the idea that we suffer. We know that we're going to suffer. But I think we are unfamiliar with the idea that Christian suffering is a grace gift from God. He gives it to us as a gift. But it's not the first time that this is mentioned, though. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, 15 to 16, God is talking to a man named Ananias. And he's telling him 
to go to go to see Paul. Paul, the persecutor of the church, who's dragged Christians into jail simply because they say they believe in Jesus Christ. And he's also approved of the murder of many Christians. He says, go to him, restore his sight for this reason. Because Paul is a chosen instrument of his to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he will also at that time show Paul how much he will suffer for his name's sake. Paul's very salvation was for a purpose. And though Ananias was afraid of of being killed by Paul, and rightly so because of what Paul has done, God says, no, don't be afraid. Heal him because this is the plan that I have for Paul. Paul is my chosen instrument, and I will use him and his unique gifts, his unique abilities in order to spread the gospel throughout the world. And by using this unique man in order to proclaim the gospel and holding him up and comforting him in the midst of suffering, God transforms Paul and teaches us how we are to respond in the midst of suffering. Now, we are obviously not Paul. Our character is nothing close to Paul's. And so our mission is a little different. It's not exactly the same as Paul's mission. We are not the apostles to the Gentiles, but we do share in the same goal of the mission in that we do share the gospel to the world. We as the church, united as one church family, united as one church body, have as our goal the spread of the gospel throughout this world for the glory of God. And yes, there will be times when we will suffer because God has grace gifted it to us. And the extent to which we suffer is going to be different from person to person. The way that I experience suffering might not necessarily be the way that you experience suffering. The things that I consider suffering might not even be a thing to you. And that's okay. That's okay. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. When we think about temptation, we often think about temptation in light of temptation to sin. But that's not necessarily what Paul is getting at here. The word that Paul uses when he says, no temptation has overtaken you, is actually a word for testing. And it's a testing that looks to see if one will pass or fail. And obviously, the connotation is a little more negative. It's a testing to see if you're going to fail. What does Paul say? It sounds really negative. What does Paul say? He says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. When we suffer, we tend to think that nobody else understands what we're going through. That we're alone. And that's not true. That's not true. That's the lie that Satan wants us to believe so that we are in despair. So that we think that there's just no way out. But the truth is we're not alone. We have our church family to come alongside us, to stand with us, to encourage us, to bring us comfort. Our brothers and sisters, they struggle just like we do. It doesn't matter how put together their life looks on the outside. We're all still sinners. We all still struggle. And we're here for one another to encourage each other and to push each other and to comfort one another. What else? What else does God say? What else does God say here or reveal to us here? He says uh, through Paul that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Even though it's hard, you are able to overcome temptation. You are able to overcome the testing of your faith that looks for you to fail. Why? Because God gives you the strength to do so. 
He, in fact, is the one who provides the way of escape so that you can endure it. Another way that you can think of of the word endure is to bear up under it. God himself gives you the strength so that you can stand up against that which is pushing you down. You're able to stand up underneath the weight of trial because God is the one who gives you the strength to do so. I know for some of you that this is a lot to take in. Philippians 1.29 is not an easy passage to understand. It's, it really is spiritual meat. And I'm, and I'm not trying to minimalize the suffering of any of you by telling you that it's a grace gift from God. I'm not trying to do that. God only gives us what we're able to handle and not announce more. Not announce more. But when we cannot see what God is doing and we're wondering why we're suffering, it is comforting to know that God has provided us a family with which to find support. But not only that, it's comforting to know the fact that God is still at work. That He has not abandoned you in your time of need, even if it seems that He has. Take note, though. This, encourage, this, this, this gift of suffering that God gives for for us, it's only for believers. You can't comfort someone by telling them about the goodness of God in their suffering when they don't even believe in Him. It's not for them. This is for you. It's for me. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. But also, understand this. That this comfort is not for you if you're suffering because of your sin. God still cares for you. He still loves you. But when you suffer as a result of your sin, that's discipline. That's not a grace gift. That's discipline. Well, actually, you know what? It is a grace gift in the sense that God cares for you and that he's disciplining you because he loves you. But don't find comfort in that if you're in sin and you're suffering. If you're foolish and you go out and you... and you do something terrible for the sake of the gospel, thinking that you'll be justified before the eyes of the Lord because of that, and you suffer rightly because of it, don't think that you're suffering for the glory of God. Don't think that he is pleased with you when you do stuff like that. The, the, the thing that, I, that comes to mind uh, for me is that man who went to the abortion clinic and shot up all those people that were there. This is about a year or two ago. And he did it because he says that, that he, he wants to honor life and he wants to honor God in opposing those who take away life. Does that make any sense? No. And so he should deserve every single ounce of judgment that he gets for that. God's not honored by that. He's not. So understand that this is not for you if you've committed sin. The comfort that we find from the grace giftedness of suffering is from the kind of suffering that God brings into your life, that he allows into your life unexpectedly. It's hard to see how suffering can be a, a, a grace gift because it's intensely personal. It's emotionally raw. And it doesn't become any easier to stomach whether you've been walking with the Lord for a short time or for a long time. It's still hard. It's still suffering. We still hurt. But for those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, it's slightly easier because we know when we suffer that we are to look to the Lord. That we're trying to process it from God's point of view rather than our own point of view. Obviously, this is something that requires great wisdom when we try and, and comfort others in their suffering. You don't necessarily, in the midst of suffering, right after someone suffers, throw this out there. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. This is God's grace gift to you. You're okay. Don't cry. That's not loving, brothers and sisters. That is not loving. Okay, we, we want to take some time. We want to be careful in the way that, that we portray this. 
God cares about your suffering. And sometimes he does allow you to suffer. But the reason why he does that, the reason why he grace gifts it to you, is so that you can know him in a way that wasn't possible before he gave it to you. He needs to put you in that position to receive his comfort. And sometimes, the way that we are right now, we're not ready for that. So if you really love God with all your heart, if you're praying for him to transform you, to use you for the glory of his kingdom, and you want to have that closer walk with him, know that he will give it to you. But sometimes that also means that he needs to prepare you for that, and sometimes that comes in the form of suffering. Suffering is something that God gifts to you so that you can be transformed into that man or woman that God wants you to be. Again, I'm not trying to minimize any of your suffering. This might hurt. It might hurt a lot. And sometimes there is no bouncing back from the suffering that you receive. Sometimes you don't get back what you've lost. It will be difficult, but our God is kind to us. He will be patient with us. He will be gracious with us as he puts us exactly where he needs us to be in order to be useful for him and his kingdom. I don't know why some of us suffer. I don't know why some of you have suffered what you've suffered. I don't have an answer for that, and I'm not going to pretend like I have one. But we trust in our God. We trust in our God because we know that he is kind. One thing that I've learned from one of my professors, his father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And um, you know, he, said to, he said to his father, Pop, Pop, how you doing? You doing okay? And his dad said, well, I don't know. I don't know necessarily how to handle this. And so my professor asked his dad, well, dad, could God have done something about it? His dad thought about it for a little while and said, yeah, God could have done something about that. And so my professor asked his dad, okay, well, if God could have done something about it, but he didn't, how does God want you to respond in light of that? And he thought about it for a little while and he said, well, I suppose that God would want me to use this for however long I have left for his glory. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. I don't know why some of you suffer. I don't know why some of you experience the things that you have. My heart breaks for you. It really does. And I'm not just saying that because I'm up here. It really does break for you. I feel grief for you. I will weep with you. But we have to understand, God could have done something about this. He absolutely could have. But when he doesn't, how does he want us to respond? How does he want us to respond? He wants us to respond by glorifying him. These Philippians, they experienced the same sort of conflict that Paul did. He says in verse 30 30, that they experienced the same conflict which they saw in him and now here to be in him. They saw all that Paul went through. And now they're hearing more of what Paul is going through. And now they too are sharing in his suffering because they too are one in Christ. But Paul, understanding the suffering that God has ordained for him, that God has gifted to him, he points their eyes to Christ. He points their eyes to Christ and he reminds them God is in absolute sovereign control of all things. He will bring about salvation. He will bring about the end of all sin. He will wipe away every tear. He is working to do that in each and every one of our lives this moment. And that's why when we suffer, we turn our eyes to Christ. We trust in him and we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, even in the midst of suffering. 
God is sovereign, and he really does work to accomplish all of his purposes. Nothing happens outside of his will. He's in complete control. And so he grace gifts to us not only salvation, but also suffering. Suffering is not a gift that we want. When we see it, when we experience it, it's that gift that we decide, that we normally decide, well, I could have done without that. I would have been better off if I had not had it at all. But as we see in this morning's passage, there is a purpose to our suffering. We can be encouraged by two things. We can be encouraged by the fact that suffering reminds us that our salvation is sure, that our God is working. It reminds us also of his sovereignty, that God has not abandoned us, that he has not lost control, that he is still there for us. I've I've experienced suffering in my life and there are times when I wish that I hadn't. But I can tell you now, I'm extremely grateful for it. Extremely grateful for it. Because without it, I wouldn't understand this. Without it, I wouldn't be the man that I am today. God has put me exactly where he wants me to be. He has had me experience exactly what he wants me to experience so that I can in turn come and encourage you to be be a useful instrument for him and for his glory. He's given me exactly what I can bear so that I can be useful. And because, because his glory is all that I care about, that's great for me. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a privilege to be able to suffer for his sake. And so I can tell you, I can tell you because I've been there, that God has not lost control. He has not abandoned you. He still deeply cares for you, and he wants what's best for you. And sometimes, sometimes that means in order for us to grow and to be the mature Christians that we want to be. God needs to be like the doctor who, who resets broken bones so that we can heal and be stronger. We can't always see what God is doing. We can't trace his hand. But this I know with full confidence, that he still loves you and that he is still good. So let me close with this final thought. It comes from 1 Peter 5, 10 to 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, you are great. Your ways are higher than our ways. We often don't understand why we suffer. And Lord, it hurts. It really does hurt. But we're thankful to you that you are the one who binds up the wounds, that you still care for us even though you allow for us to suffer. Pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us now. That you would allow for us as a church family, as one body, to come alongside those who are suffering, to encourage them, to weep with them, and to comfort them. We pray, O Lord, that even though we might not necessarily jump for joy when suffering comes, that when it does come, that you would help us to look at it with eyes of faith. We thank you for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us 
not only to appreciate our salvation, but also suffering as well. Thank you for your goodness to us and for your kindness to us and that you do what is good for us, even though it might not necessarily be good to us in that moment. Thank you, Lord, for everything. Just in your son's name that we pray. Amen.